Hello, I'm Jen Choi. Welcome to Voices of Private Equity, a podcast hosted by ILPA, the Institutional Limited Partners Association. In this series, through candid conversations with the people who power this amazing industry, we go beyond the labels and the headlines. Join me in getting to know the individuals who are shaping the future of private equity. In this episode, we're joined by Steve Kim. Steve is a partner at Virtus Investment Management, a family office. Steve's been with the firm since its founding in 2004 and directs investment strategy and risk management. And today, Virtus has invested across more than 80 managers before becoming an LP. Steve gained deep experience as a technologist, leading technology development and operational infrastructure at organizations such as Orcom Solutions, PeopleClick, Clear Communications, and the Walt Disney Company. As we're going to tease out in the conversation, that's afforded him what I find to be a unique perspective on the role that data science plays in LP decision-making. Thanks so much for joining me here, Steve. Thank you for having me. So to start off with a word or two, Steve, about Virtus, and to just put the conversation into some context, it's an established investment office serving now, I hope I have this right, the ninth generation of this family, which is remarkable in and of itself. How would you sum up the investment objectives of your private markets program for the generations of the family that you serve? Ninth generation is pretty crazy. I think our primary objective is to leverage the long-term investment outlook of the family and to compound capital at the highest rate. We want to take advantage of long-duration investments in asset classes, and that's why we're focused on optimizing the geometric mean versus the arithmetic mean. And a good example of this is how our focus is on TVPI versus IRR. Both IRR and TVPI are very duration-sensitive, but in the opposite ways. IRR increases with shorter duration and TVPI with longer duration. So as a family, because we're interested in in long-term capital appreciation and compounding, we tend to focus more on that TVPI measure. And in terms of the shift that you've made, and this is what I really thought would be interesting to explore, you've said that when you started off, you were operating as a more conventional endowment model not really leveraging data, looking at the portfolio in a terribly data-driven way. But then about five years ago, you had what sounds a bit like an epiphany. You were able to exploit what was an explosion of more readily available data, especially on private markets. And you started to ask yourself, your colleagues, how you could do things better. And I'm curious, what was the trigger? What prompted you? And what was the ingoing thesis that shaped the work that followed? An epiphany is a really good word. And the epiphany was very, very painful for us in the sense that it took us a lot of time and a lot of conversations within the family office to get our head around what the data was telling us. And I think one of the things that we've come across is that term data-driven is really, really overused. And if you talk to 20 different investors, you'll probably get a different definition. So when we had that epiphany, we spent a lot of time trying to make sure that what we were seeing is actually correct. Uh, We started applying our data-driven approach in public markets initially. And that was for convenience reasons because there was a tremendous amount of data that was already available there. But when we looked at that data, it really pointed to one thing. And this was the piece that was really difficult for us to get our heads around, is that markets have a strong random component to them. And we asked a fundamental question, 
why does this seem to be ignored in investing? So if the data is pointing to the fact that markets tend to have a very high random component, then why is it that investing seems to ignore that piece? And what would happen if we assume markets to be random from a baseline perspective? How does that change our investment strategy? How does that change the way we think about portfolio construction? And this set us on a path to understand the probability distribution of the asset classes we were investing in, whether they were Gaussian, which is kind of a typical bell-shaped curve, log normal power law, the tails and skews of the distributions. There are certain strategies that have distinct advantages depending on these structures. We still look for skill, but it's a bonus and is not really required for us to achieve our investment returns. And I think that was the epiphany, is the data is telling us that it's random, that there's a large random component. How do we take advantage of that in our investment strategy? A couple of follow-ups on that, Steve. I guess the first would be armed with more of this data, having access to more of this data. What data were you using when you first started to go through this process on the private market side? And then you mentioned that certain strategies might align better depending on the distribution of the data you're looking at. You know, you mentioned Gaussian log normal. As some examples, how did you come to those conclusions that certain strategies were going to be better aligned with certain distributions of those market outcomes? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the most fundamental way to look at that is to think about passive. So if you look at the public markets today in the U.S., most investors will tell you and the data will tell you that the distribution looks normal or looks Gaussian, right? So one way to take advantage of that is a passive investment. So a cheap, readily available investment strategy for most investors is just going passive that pretty much assures that you're going to get the average return of that public market. So that's one way of taking advantage of it. But then when you think about diversification, if you're um, aspirational and you want to try to beat that average return, then you should take a different strategy. And as I mentioned, diversification is a big piece of that. So the more you're diversified, the more you have from a probability perspective to get that average return. So if you're aspirational and looking to beat the average, it doesn't necessarily make sense to be too diversified. You need to be more concentrated. So that's some of the thinking that you'd have to go through when you look at those distributions. Growth equity, as another example, looks like a log normal distribution. It doesn't look Gaussian. So what should be the strategy and the portfolio construction that lends itself to that kind of distribution? And how should you create a portfolio that takes advantage of that distribution to capture those returns? Venture capital is a different one. It's power law distributed. So there's a different strategy that you should probably use when you're thinking about trying to harvest those returns and think about uh, portfolio construction. And I was just about to go there. I wanted to ask you about seed stage investing, which I know you do. I guess the first question would be, is there a different distribution when you look at venture versus when you look at seed specifically? There is. The distribution looks different as you move from seed to later stage venture. It's really, really interesting when you look at the data. Seed stage investing, the distribution looks power law. And it's one of the only power law distributions that you're going to see, or it's rare to see that power law distribution in asset classes. But as you move later in the venture life cycle, 
their distribution becomes more normal looking. So kind of the mid-stage uh, series B through maybe D, you're going to get this log normal distribution, what we call the distribution of later stage venture. And as you get further and further till you get to the buyout distribution, which looks Gaussian. So venture kind of has the gamut. It goes from power law to Gaussian as you get further and further away from early stage. And each of those distributions, it's really important to think about what the investment strategy should be when you come across those distributions. So obviously, talked about the distinction to the distribution of outcomes with seed stage, but just more generally, it's a fundamentally different set of risks and opportunities and buyouts, kind of the distribution aside. And with your basic assumption that markets are random, and that skill is a bonus, but it's not necessarily the first thing that you should be looking at. You should be looking at that alignment between strategy and the probability distribution. What about all this academic research that's been done on the persistence of performance? And a lot of that comes back to skill. And of course, the real bottom line there is that the top performing LPs are those that are the best at manager selections. How do you pull out that together? And how do you think about the benefits of the academic research when you think about the data modeling that you're doing? So that's a, that's been a question that we've probably spent the most amount of time debating back and forth. This notion that certain managers, you have to be invested in certain managers as it relates to venture capital to get the returns that, that you're looking for in venture. You can, by extension, also look at other markets as well. There's always this assumption that you need to be in, in certain managers to get certain returns. And that's that belief in persistence. It's probably a pretty strong belief in the venture ecosystem that persistence actually exists. But the way we look at it is we do think persistence exists, but not necessarily for the reasons that most people think. There's certainly some persistence due to skill, which means that you need to be in the right managers. But there's also venture persistence due to the skewed power law nature of venture capital. And this has to do with a concept called ergodicity. It's very, very similar to how wealth gets concentrated in a few individuals. You can say, for example, that Jeff Bezos is incredibly skilled or that wealth distribution is a non-ergotic process. And more than likely, it's some combination of the two. Venture, because of its power law skew, lends itself to this phenomenon called ergodicity. And it happens to be a non-ergotic process like wealth distribution. So in our, in, in, when we look at that, we think it's a combination of two, and that's why persistence seems to show up more in venture capital returns. And I did tell you that you taught me a new word, ergodicity. Um, <laughs> so I'm trying to find more opportunities to use that. So thank you. Thank you for that. We've also talked about the degree to which the underlying data that you're using and the integrity of that data impacts on the model and the, the decisions that come from that part of which, and I'm sure this was especially true in the early days of building out your more data-driven program, you were triangulating across multiple sources where you were maybe encountering gaps, holes in the data, maybe even flaws. How do you go about that? Or how did you go about that in the, in the beginning? And how do you go about that now? So we try to separate how we look at data into two parts, the analytics part and the data science part. The analytics portion is really all about finding questions in the data, because once you do the, the initial analysis, what we call the initial analytics, we're really finding and digging for questions, questions that the data is providing to us. The data science piece is looking for the answers and then testing them. 
So this leads to a very rigorous process of making sure the data is validated. It's a separate process to do the analytics to find the questions. And then it's a data science piece that looks for those answers and testing those. The other piece of that is that we try not to fall into what we call data mining. Um, and this is really to recognize that data is not deterministic, that it's more probability-based. So we try to avoid that data mining piece and trying to find data that just supports whatever answer that we wanted. And as far as the sources of the data that you're turning to to run these models, I won't ask you to rank them by quality or anything like that. <laughs> but what are some of those data integrity issues that you do run into that you have to resolve before you can get to the data science piece of all of this? So we use a number of all kinds of data sources. We use Burgess, we use PitchBook, we use Evestment, we use Alborn. Um, there are some really, really high quality data sources now that are available and that allow you to triangulate and the, the data so that you're getting the same data and you're getting the same questions and answers, whether you use different data sources or not. And that helps us validate the quality. Private information is a little harder to get, but there's been a really, really emphasis being placed by data providers to provide private markets data because Public markets data has been available for a while, so it's highly, highly competitive, but it's not quite as competitive on the private market side. So people are really, really jumping in to provide private markets data. The other thing we do is scrape data from digital media. So the digitizing of the world has just been a huge boom for us as far as getting access to data because there's just so much of it that we can scrape and analyze. So it's really using all those things to make sure that we have a full data set and one that we can validate across the different data sources that we have. And the scraping that you're doing, is that is that automated? Is there a bit of AI to that or is that still a somewhat manual process? That's a great question. It is automated. So we use code to do that and we use tooling to do that. But we are starting to explore machine learning to be able to do that a little more effectively and to be more nuanced in what we're looking at and how we look at that data. So we are experimenting with machine learning algorithms and machine learning platforms to give us a more of an edge on how we categorize data and how we look at data. I'd say if I had to guess, you're probably at the forefront <laughs> of the LP universe in, in terms of moving to that machine learning step, although we've started to hear from a few ILPA members, LPs, who have begun to explore the space. And I would expect that a lot of that information that can be scraped off of the digital media, the social media, can be useful in the next question I have for you, which is, You've got a lot of discretion in terms of how you put the portfolio together. You're taking a long-term view. You're not tinkering around a lot with those strategic asset allocation decisions. But early stage in particular, you've got more turnover than you would say in a buyouts portfolio. It's not something LPs love necessarily to deal with. So how do you stay on top of those promising new managers, newer managers, uh, when you're thinking about that higher velocity part of your program, and does does that data that you're scraping from the digital and social media anyway help you? It does a lot. When we originally started the program, we relied heavily on being kind of proactive. So we used technology to interface with the SEC so we could see every fund formation, and we reached out to those funds proactively to to learn more. 
we still use this along with, uh, as I mentioned, you know, being able to scrape digital media to do that. But now we get a tremendous amount of deal flow from our GPs, LPs, and our networks. Um, so it's really been a combination. We're still proactive because we think it's a necessary component of what we do. But our deal flow has evolved a lot to be a significant portion of that has been inbound. And the machine learning piece, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, I think it's something that we, we think is, has tremendous potential. And I think our approach is a little bit unique because what we're trying to do, how we're leveraging machine learning is actually how we categorize images. So image categorization is a pretty advanced uh, area as it relates to machine learning. And a picture is worth a thousand words. I won't go into the details how we're leveraging image categorization on the machine learning side, but we think there's a tremendous amount of potential in actually doing categorizing images because, like I said, there's just a, a ton of embedded data that's in the image without having to look at actual numbers or words, which is typically how machine learning is being leveraged in the investment world today. And I know this podcast is audio only, but I think we're all probably dying for a visual example <laughs> of what you just described. And you've told us, I think, for someone who's not spending a lot of time thinking about data science or machine learning in the context of their portfolio, it might be easy to take from this conversation that they couldn't do it. But you've said, just because you think you can't, you, there are actually practices that you can adopt in thinking about your portfolio construction, whether you're a family office or a big public pension. So how should LPs start thinking differently about data in their decision-making, maybe short of building a program or writing code, if that's not something they're able to do? I think writing the code or hiring individuals that can write the code and to work with the tooling is, it's difficult to integrate all the tooling and it takes a lot of work to find out what tooling makes sense. And it's certainly not easy to hire the right individuals, but I think that's one that, that most investors can overcome. I think the biggest piece that's really difficult when you go down this data-driven route is, is to actually understand what you mean by being data-driven, how you want to use that data, and the commitment to really use it. And that leads to, can you overcome the behavioral biases that the data will uncover? And I think that's key. I think people say they're data-driven, but don't really make a commitment to it. And when they see data uh, answer a question in, the, in a manner that they're not used to um, the answer, or it's, it's, a, it's against what they thought, or it, it leads them down a path of, okay, well, there's no way the data is actually saying that. It's really overcoming those uh, behavioral biases. Can you make the change from being deterministic to focusing on probabilities? That's another tough one, because it's really when you think about numbers, we've all heard the saying, it's, it's just the math. A lot of times you think about when you see a number like three, that that's a deterministic number. Well, the difference between getting a four and a three, yes, deterministically four is greater than three, but from a probability basis, they could be exactly the same or very close to being the same. So I think it's that those behavioral biases and overcoming those and then making the commitment to use the data that's the difficult piece. Right. But as you say, it's it's not easy. There have been many, many books written about behavior among investors. So we know 
the legitimacy of that challenge. To turn to you, as I like to do on the podcast, I wanted to ask a couple questions about Steve Kim. And maybe to start because I love to eat and I'm not alone in that. And I know Philadelphia has some incredibly good food. I miss it since I'm not able to travel these days. Any recommendations on must-try restaurants and which side are you on in the cheesesteak wars? <laughs> so I'm a huge foodie and we're we're big foodies in the office. So every Friday, we this is when we were all together. It's really, really difficult now that we're all virtual, but we used to have foodie, what we call foodie Fridays, where we would, um, somebody would be tasked to find a great restaurant or something to order online, um, bring it into the office and we'd all uh, enjoy that on Friday. So that was kind of a tradition that we've had because of we're all foodies in the office. But to go back and answer your question, I've always loved Park for their roast chicken. And it's it's got a, an amazing brasserie atmosphere. And having lived in Paris, when I worked for Disney, I missed that brasserie atmosphere and I missed the roast chicken. So I would recommend Park. Barbuzo is a great is great for Mediterranean and double knot for sushi. So I'm a big sushi fan as well. So that's a great place. And then on the cheesesteak side, Delisandro's steak is probably my favorite. I like Jim's steaks, but you know, there's a lot of good cheesesteak places. And I think what for me, what the big piece that's important when I order cheesesteak is I like whiz and I like onions. And you, you got to know that when you get to the head of the line. I've learned that that's the hard right. way. You have to know that. <laughs> Just to wrap up, I wanted to ask, uh, what have you been watching and reading while you've been in lockdown? Have you come back to any favorites? So I love the book by Annie Duke, Thinking in Bets. I think Range from David Epstein is a really good book. Those are not necessarily investment books, even though Annie Duke's Thinking in Bets probably is more so than Range. But the other book I find interesting is uh, Life Finds a Way. And that's by an author, um, an evolutionary biologist named Andreas Wagner. It's interesting when you think about some of these other kind of sciences and how they relate to investing. I mean, it's really difficult to get creative and sometimes um, reading about other areas and other disciplines is, is helpful for me anyway in, in, uh, in being creative. The other one is Finding the Mother Tree and it's by Suzanne Simard, who's a botanist by training. And it talks about how she's really revolutionized botany and it's an interesting read as well. I think on the movie side, probably along with everybody else, Queen's Gambit, uh, The Crown, maybe a little off the rung is the final season of Vikings. Wow. Well, that, that a really diverse set of things <laughs> that you just ran through there. I, I, I like the idea of looking to um, other domains and disciplines to generate those creative ideas we can apply to where we spend most of our time. Steve, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for spending the time with me today. Thank you, Jennifer. It was my pleasure. <laughs>